Stuff Podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Wright and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. This week's story is called The Disappearing River. It's by Stuff National Correspondent Charlie Mitchell, who joins me now. Hi, Charlie. Hello. Going back to your roots a bit with this one. Long Read listeners are probably familiar with Charlie uh, for his work on the pandemic and specifically misinformation around the pandemic, but he is technically still, I think, National Correspondent for the Environment. Is that right? Yes, that is um, technically true. Um, yeah, it feels pretty quaint to come back to these these old issues um, in the before times. Um, no, it's it's definitely important that we continue to cover this stuff. All right, well, let's get into it. The disappearing river. Um, tell us about this river. Yeah, so this is um, this is a very complicated story that it's hard to describe in you know thousands of words, let alone a, a brief chat. Um, but the river we're talking about here is called the Manuhirakia. And it flows through central Otago. So for anyone who knows the central Otago geography, it, it sort of starts near St. Bathans and flows down to Alexandra, where it meets the Clutha. Um, and the important thing to know about this river is that this area it's in is essentially the driest region in the country. Um, it's, it's about as close as we've got to a desert. Um, and this river is actually quite large in terms of volume, so it, it has this oversized influence in, in the landscape there. And there's been this sort of long-running issue about how much water should be allowed to stay in the river, um, because for various historical reasons, there really haven't been any limits on the river, so people have been allowed to take almost as much water as they would like. But that is starting to change Um for, for various reasons we can we can talk about. Yeah, so this is not a new issue when it comes to fresh water and irrigation and agriculture, um, the environment, how all those things converge. Uh, how did you come to this story and why did you choose to tell it through this river? I sort of came about it um, in large part due to this very contentious regional council meeting that I had last year, uh, which is described in the story, but essentially they... The councillors spoke for about four hours, um, debating endlessly about whether they should note these recommendations for how much water should be in the river. <clears throat> and it sort of highlighted the um, sort of extreme divisiveness of this issue. Um, and the reason why this has become such an issue now is because the, the national context has, has kind of changed. So a couple of years ago, in the midst of the pandemic, uh, the, the government passed its fresh water reforms, um, which didn't get a whole lot of notice, but, but one aspect of these reforms is massively significant, and, it, and it's called Tamana Otiwai. And basically what it means is that any council that is setting rules around its uh, rivers has to put the river first. It, it can't make decisions based on the economy or social issues. It has to put the health of the river first. Um, which is a real step change in terms of how regional councils have functioned because they have traditionally been dominated by farmers and, and rural interests who have been quite keen to, to try balance the environment with the economy. And now they can't do that. And so the Otago Regional Council and the Manihirakia are sort of at, on the front lines of this issue having to litigate this new debate they've become involved in. 
All right. I love it when stories start with seemingly boring and insignificant details. So let's get right into it. Here is me reading Charlie's story, The Disappearing River. To tell the full story of the Manuherakia River, you'd have to go back tens of millions of years to the inland sea and the tropical crocodiles. The river, then, was a massive lake covered all of central Otago, fringed with gum trees and ringed by salty mudflats. Fossil records show the lake was home crocodiles and flightless burrowing bats. The surrounding river delta a feeding ground for ancient wading birds related to flamingos and squawkzilla, the largest known parrot to ever exist. Over time, the land heaved upwards, narrowing the lake's edges into a river through which moa traipsed and Māori gathered kai in the steep valleys the water left behind. Gold mining empires prospered and collapsed along of its banks. Its waters fuelled the sheep and cattle boom that has come to define central Otago, turning the sun-tinged tussocks green. We join this story, unfortunately, late in the piece. The river is at a low point, both figuratively and literally. Its grand history is mere window dressing for a dispute about water management, the limits of local governance, and the difficulty in holding the environment and the economy together. More specifically, we arrive at this story on a Wednesday afternoon in August. Elected members of the Otago Regional Council, the body responsible for water management in the region, are meeting over Zoom with COVID to discuss how much water should be in the Manuherikia River. The meeting, mired with technical difficulties, devolves into raised voices and accusations. It becomes symbolic of how the debate around the Manuherikia has cleaved a rural community in two. But first, the river. The Manuherikia River starts high in the often snow-capped Hawkton and St Bathans ranges, flowing down to the Falls Dam, constructed in the 1930s to control the flow in the river. It then cuts through steep, canyon-like schist walls before spilling out onto the plains, braided through tussock land and pasture. More gorges, more plains, more braids. After 85 kilometres, it ends at Alexandra, where it spills into the Clutha, the country's largest river. The basin is part of the driest area in New Zealand, and the closest thing the country has to a desert. In an average year, it will get 400 millimetres of rainfall, similar to some parts of the Middle East, meaning fresh water is in short supply. The chief water supplier is the Manuherikia River, which receives snowmelt from the ranges. In its upper reaches, the river can seem raw, primal, tearing apart steep schist rock. In reality, it's one of the most heavily depleted rivers in the country and a shadow of its former self. Most rivers start with a low flow at their source, picking up pace as they descend downwards and take water from connecting streams and creeks, reaching their highest flow where they terminate into another river or the sea. 
the Manuherekia does the opposite. Its high flow is diminished through irrigation, leaving little remaining at its mouth. Ecologically speaking, it functions more like a water race than a river. The result is that the Manuherekia is likely the most over-extracted river in the country. Around 75% of its water is taken. According to the Otago Regional Council's current water plan, the Manuherekia should have a take limit of 3,200 litres per second. In reality, consents allow nearly 26,000 litres per second to be taken. When you look at it now, as it limps into the Clutha, the Manuherekia's average flow is a whisper of what it once was. A giant lake, no more. Barely even a river. It's a hazy late summer afternoon in Otorahua, a tiny community in central Otago's Ida Valley, when we stop by to inquire about the river. Otorahua used to be a gold mining town, but it's since become known for something else, an unusually high number of poets and writers. Among its few dozen residents are several accomplished authors who have published many books between them. Otorahua almost certainly has the most published books per capita in the country. It is still, however, a rural Otago community, surrounded by farmland, which can create tensions. Among the town's residents is the poet Brian Turner, who lives in a small, cosy house along the main drag, rooms piled high with books. In a poem, Turner once described the Manuherekia River as a liberating place. Now, he says, there's less water in the streams and fewer fish to collect. The basin's dry tussocks have made way for irrigated pasture. It's much, much greener than it used to be at various times of the year, he says, reclining in his chair. There was no pivot irrigation and that sort of thing, and more native grassland. The Manuherekia was entirely different in many parts. Turner has been roaming central Otago rivers for more than half a century, since he was a young man living in Becks, which is along the Manuherekia. He's a keen fisherman and tramper. Turner keeps across the environmental issues of the day, including the minimum flow debate currently roiling the council. He and several of his fellow authors in Otorohua are among the chief advocates for restoring the river. They're members of the Central Otago Environmental Society, which has lobbied for stronger environmental limits on the Manuherekia and other rivers. It can be a tough stand to make in a small rural community, where issues are litigated at the local pub, one of the few surviving remnants of the gold mining days. Turner and other environmentalists have been accused of being extremists, or showing insufficient regard for the plight of farmers, some of whom are their neighbours. There are a hell of a lot of farmers who love their land and do a good job, Turner says, so it's not black and white. It's a fiction, or a myth, to accuse people with concerns about our natural environment to be anti-farming. We're not anti-farming. We're averse to some of the consequences and what's being done to the land and the water. 
Turner was recently diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and struggles with his short-term memory. But he remembers the past well, including what the land and rivers used to look like. The river has been allowed to reduce to too little a flow, he says. You'll find a lot of people agree with that, on the environmentalist side anyway. A few doors down, Gillian Sullivan, another published writer and Turner's partner, is growing a hemp crop on her property. It was her attempt to explore different land uses, ones that might be less onerous on the land and water. After her first year, she admits it's been difficult. The results have been mixed, due in part to the harsh climate. Growing hemp without enough water has been a harsh introduction into what water means for people's livelihoods, she says. We walk down to the stream flowing through her land, which is a tributary of the Manuherekia River. The water is clouded, grimy. Thick brown algae cling to the rocks. Small shards of coal from an old mine have washed onto the banks. It's not looking too bad, Sullivan says, a bit surprised. A solitary pool of water looks vaguely swimmable. Last year, Sullivan and others walked the length of the Manuherekia River. She recounted the experience to the Environment Court, arguing in favour of setting minimum flows in the river. On the first day, she rolled up her trousers, ready to walk through the river. She sunk into a deep pool. The river's flow was high. A month later, she returned to the same section, the river's channel had moved entirely. Dry, white-crusted boulders lay where the pool had been. Its flow was less than one cubic metre per second. Sullivan accepts how difficult it can be to reconcile what everyone needs to thrive. But having seen the river in its whole, she knows the river has needs too. Walking the river gave me a deep insight into what a river is, she told me, what is meant by the life force of a river. We need to move forward with more awareness of everyone's needs, including the rivers and streams. This story, unfortunately, is not all poets, parrots and landscapes. It requires a cursory knowledge of the dynamics of the Otago Regional Council, which is a saga in itself. In brief, the debate about the Manuherekia River is about how much water should be in it. Due to a strange historical quirk, many of Otago's rivers don't have minimum flow limits. Most rivers in New Zealand have these limits. They're like a do-not-cross line. When flows get to that level, you can't take water from the river. These limits, on average are set around 75% of a river's mean flow, meaning 25% of its water can be extracted. Because the Manuherekia has no minimum flow, much more water is taken. Irrigators have set a voluntary limit of around 25% of its mean annual low flow, meaning water users can take 75% of the water. This can leave the river and its tributaries barely flowing in dry periods. There's certainly been a major change in the way the river behaves, and that's due, basically, to excessive extraction 
says Matthew Soule, a member of the Central Otago Environmental Society who has lived by the river for 40 years. When we used to swim in the river in the early 1980s, Soule says, we'd be able to float down between pools. When I walked it in more recent times, there's no way you could do that. You'd have to walk. This not only affects the main stem of the river, but also its many connecting creeks and streams, some of which can be sucked dry through irrigation. This has happened alongside broader environmental and economic changes. Central Otago is not Canterbury. It's still sheep and beef country, and dairy farming is a small proportion of the total. But there has been growth in both the intensity of that farming and the amount of land that is irrigated. It's been driven by precise irrigation techniques, such as central pivot spray irrigators. Unlike older flood irrigators, which drench a concentrated area with water every so often, spray irrigators frequently apply a small amount of water more consistently. This change is both a blessing and a curse. Because spray irrigators are so precise, they deliver just enough water for the crop or pasture to grow, which prevents wastage. But if you suddenly lose access to enough water, the crop or pasture will quickly fail. The water supply needs to be consistent and predictable. This is already hard in the driest part of New Zealand. Rules to keep more water in the river would make it even tougher, and for some farms, impossible. So this is the dilemma the council faces. A river short of water and an economy on consistent access to that water. This is tricky enough, but the Otago Regional Council has another related issue on its plate. It has to write and pass a brand new land and water plan. The reason for this is unique and requires some context. Back in the gold mining days, generous water use permits were given to miners by the government so they could sluice the gold fields. This led to a massive over-allocation of the Manuherekia River. When mining collapsed, the government allowed the water to be used for irrigation instead. Importantly, the water rights were perpetually renewable. They did not expire and had few restrictions on how much water could be used. The government itself collected most of the water rights to construct its own irrigation schemes in the Manuherekia. In the 1980s, the government privatised these schemes and the water rights, granting them to individual farmers and irrigation collectives. At the same time, the Resource Management Act was passed, allowing a 30-year period for those rights, which it called deemed permits, to expire. That was 1991. By October 2021, all these water rights from the mining days would be gone and replaced under the rules that apply to the rest of the country, which would be far less generous. That, of course, has now passed, but the issue is far from over. The idea was that when the permits expired, the replacement water consents would be issued under the council's land and water plan, 
which would meet the requirements of the National Policy Statement for Fresh Water, set by the government. The problem? By October 2021, the Council only had its Land and Water Plan from 2004, which clearly didn't meet the national standards. Hundreds of consents were about to lapse with no reasonable plan for how they'd be replaced. This was not a surprise. In 2019, Minister for the Environment David Parker commissioned a review into the deemed permit issue, looking at whether the council was ready for the deemed permits to expire. The review, undertaken by former judge Peter Skelton, was critical. The council was not ready. His report came out shortly before the local body elections, Skelton was at the first meeting of newly elected councillors, explaining to them how much work they had to do. At this pivotal time in the council's history, councillors opted to vote a newly elected member as chair, former Minister for the Environment, Marion Hobbs. Her deputy chair was Michael Laws, the former Whanganui Mayor, New Zealand First MP and talkback radio host. This was a bracing reversal of the recent trends. Like other regional councils, the ORC was perceived to be driven by farming interests, rather than environmental interests. It's been the fox looking after the henhouse, says Phil Murray, chairman of the Central Otago Environmental Society. The farming industry, Murray says, has totally dominated the decisions around the allocation of a public resource in favour of a very narrow, small part of the community. Hobbs, however, was committed to driving through a new land and water plan that would put stronger environmental protections in place. She repeatedly pushed for speed, including truncated public consultation periods. She was seen as sympathetic, or some argued compliant, to the government, which itself was urging the ORC to hurry up. Early in 2020, the Council made a big step towards meeting the government's requirements. Its new plan change meant any new water use consents would only last six years. This stopgap measure was a blow to irrigators, who rely on longer-term consents, typically up to 35 years, to secure funding for farming infrastructure. This new rule applied to the hundreds of deemed permits that would expire in October 2021, as well as any other consents expiring in the coming years. These short-term consents would also limit users to their past average water use and not allow any irrigation expansion. Basically, it meant no farmers could get ahead of the new land and water plan before it came into effect. And this is when things started to fall apart. Hobbs was ousted from her job as chair. After it emerged, she had written to Parker asking if he would replace the councillors with commissioners if she lost an upcoming vote. She remained on the council, but the chairman role was given to Andrew Noon, a former Dunedin city councillor and a sheep and beef farmer who was seen as a more unifying presence. Ugly and false rumours circulated that Hobbs had dementia. She continued to request, publicly this time, that
that commissioners replaced the councillors and even signed a public petition to that effect. She told the media there had been a war against her. There was more drama. The council's chief executive, Sarah Gardner, filed a code of conduct complaint against Laws following public comments he made about council staff. It was not upheld. Several other councillors publicly lobbied for their own sacking, saying the council was unable to act impartially on issues involving fresh water. Yet another faced allegations he was working behind the scenes to influence decisions around the Manuherakia he was publicly recused from. He had a large water take from the river. And the head of the council's freshwater science team resigned, citing a wish to go overseas in the middle of the process. It's understood turnover among council staff is high. All of this conflict lurked beneath the August Zoom meeting, which we touched on at the start of this story. You can't imagine how horrible it is to take the stand and be treated like you're the one in the wrong, especially in a sexual crime situation. From Bird of Paradise, for stuff, this is Tell Me About It. Going behind the scenes of our journalism to the voices of real people whose stories make the news. You're just so out of control of it. You know, I felt like a ghost of the system a lot of the time. It's like, no, why can no one actually see who I am? With me, Kirsty Johnston, Michelle Duff, and our producer, Noelle McCarthy. Can I ask you a question that might seem quite basic? Has it all been worth it? From a justice point of view, I would still struggle to say that right now, but it's still raw. Tell Me About It was made possible by New Zealand On Air. Subscribe and review us, please, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The purpose of the August meeting was for council staff to formally recommend how much water they think should be in the Manuherakia. People had been waiting for this number. What makes the Manuherakia issue so tricky is that there is little agreement on what the minimum flow should be. At the moment, irrigators have a voluntary agreement to leave the river at 900 litres per second, where it flows through Alexandra. Everyone agrees this is too low. The irrigators have since proposed a minimum flow of 1,100 litres per second, whilst maintaining residual flows in the connecting streams and creeks, which can currently be sucked dry. Everyone would be feeling a wee bit of pain to do that, says Anna Gillespie, a farmer who chairs the local water users group. There would be more times when we would have water shut off than what has been already, but the proposal is based on the ecological values in those creeks. Environmentalists and iwi, however, favour a much higher minimum flow, anywhere between 3,000 and 4,000 litres per second. This would cut off irrigation for long periods of time and make some farms unviable, but it would significantly improve the river's ecological functions. This is the problem at the heart of the Manuherakia debate. There is very little room for either side to compromise. As part of its work, the council investigated five minimum flow scenarios for the river, 
ranging from 1,200 to 3,000 litres per second. At 1,200 litres per second, virtually all ecological aspects of the river remain degraded, with frequent algal blooms in the summer. Irrigation reliability would only decline slightly, and there would be no loss of employment in normal years. At 3,000 litres per second, the river would become a productive freshwater ecosystem with flourishing life. Irrigation would basically become unviable, with finance becoming very difficult to obtain. Most of the space in between is a dead zone. At 2,000 litres per second, irrigation reliability is poor and ecological health remains degraded. It's only at either extreme that you get a favourable outcome for either side. The Council, nevertheless, tried to strike a middle path in making its recommendation. It proposed starting with a minimum flow of 1,200 litres per second by 2023, slowly ratcheting it up to 2,500 litres per second by 2044. A lot of work has gone into these numbers, which would dictate the future of the surrounding community. By the Council's own estimation, it had taken six years, cost $4.4 million and involved 26,587 staff hours. Much of this work has been assessed by a technical advisory group, comprising scientists nominated by each of the interest groups involved. It means the Manuherekia is likely among the most thoroughly studied rivers in the country. It took the councillors four and a half hours to debate these numbers. To make a very long story short, some of the councillors opposed even noting the staff recommendation, ostensibly because they wanted more scientific work done. The others argued that this was a delay tactic, and it was their job as councillors to land on a number. Your arguments all focus on delay, Councillor Alexa Forbes told the meeting. Grasping at straws to defend an indefensible position, and I can only assume this delay is to find something that might support the continued economic exploitation of this river. This is how a river dies, people. Science creates loose ends. It will not tie them up. We have enough science to defend a higher minimum flow. Marion Hobbs made a similar argument, noting the time and effort that had gone into the recommendation. Dear God she pleaded with her colleagues. What more could we want? For those declining to note the recommendation, the science, comprehensive as it may be, was still not enough. They were being asked to make a decision that would impact many people. Jobs, livelihoods, communities could be lost. All the majority of councillors are asking for, Councillor Michael Law said, is that before we start to inflict what we know is a significant cost upon hundreds, potentially thousands of people that we represent, that we know the science is exact, that it is agreed, and that it allows us to make the right, appropriate decision. Laws continued, I've heard what I can only consider to be almost hysteria 
in the previous comments of the economic exploitation of the river, how the river will die if we don't make a decision today. A supremely ludicrous proposition, when all that is being asked is that we actually do what we set out to do. Those opposed to noting the recommendation, one, the council asked for more science from the advisory group, which had already finished its work and would need to reassemble. It seemed unlikely that more science would change the outcome. By the end of the meeting, it was clear tempers were frayed and councillors were frustrated with each other. Not long after the meeting, Hobbes would resign from the council and several other councillors would lobby for the government to fire them, claiming the council was dysfunctional. Acknowledging the split near the end of the meeting, Chairman Andrew Noon, who had voted not to note the flow limits, made a plea for unity. I believe we all want the same thing, he said. We say it in a different language. As chair, I don't want us to fall apart. I don't want any of us to have to swim against the tide. This might seem like a parochial dispute about one community and its river, but in some ways it encapsulates the long-running tension around water management that has happened, in some form, in every region in the country. What makes the Manuherakia issue so important is that the entire context of this debate has changed in a way that is likely to prompt many more debates like it around the country. In September 2020, a new national policy statement for fresh water came into effect following the government's freshwater reforms. All councils have to give effect to this document, which sets out the principles they need to follow when making decisions. One principle supersedes all others in these new rules. It's called te mana o te wai, the mana of the water. In short, Councils have to consider this simple hierarchy when making rules around water. 1. The health, or mana, of the water. 2. The health of the people, for example, drinking water. 3. The ability of people and communities to provide for their social, economic and cultural well-being. At the top, notably, is the health of the river. At the bottom is the economy. In the past, regional councils could prioritise economic matters in their freshwater decisions, and often did. Now, they must put freshwater quality first. What does this mean in practice? It's not quite clear. Otago is among the first to have this debate, starting a new water plan from scratch that has to meet Te Mana o Te Wai from day one. Other councils can transition their existing plans. For environmentalists, this makes much of the Manuherakia debate meaningless. In the past, councils had more room to balance the economy and the environment. Now, the choice has been made for them. Te mana o te wai is the law, 
Phil Murray of the Central Otago Environmental Society says. What we're seeing here, from councillors voting to delay a decision, is a pushback against the national policy statement and its hierarchy. We've got land use that is very water consumptive, established in the driest part of New Zealand, which makes it very difficult and expensive to achieve Te Mano with a council that has no political will to do that. A similar argument has been made by other environmental groups. Rick Zwan of Forest and Bird, which has lobbied for a higher minimum flow, says, The core principle we've been pushing for is ensuring that Te Mana o Te Wai, the health of the river, comes first. And it requires that when you're considering these flows, that needs to be at the forefront of the decision-making, prior to considering other uses of that water. By not noting the flow limits proposed by staff, limits that are lower than what Forest and Bird and other environmental groups have lobbied for, councillors were delaying a decision they had no choice but to make. In terms of rivers in New Zealand, Zwan says, the amount of science that has been done in this catchment is really extensive. My question is, what more do you want to know in terms of being able to determine what these minimum flows are? Anna Gillespie has farmed from Teano to Topol, but she says there's something different about farming in central Otago, weathering the harsh climate, working with the landscape. It's a powerful place to farm, she says. You're facing those challenges and working with the environment to mitigate and grow as much food as you can. I love it. She and her husband, Ben, have run a 360-hectare farm near Omoko for 10 years, which has been an exercise in learning to live with the environment. They mostly farm young dairy stock, with some beef finishing. A bit over half the farm is irrigated. It's about as intensive as farming gets in the Manuherekia. They've designed their farm to handle the punishingly dry conditions working with the soil to maintain moisture and growing as much food as possible in the times when water is available. It's just working with the biological system you've got, Gillespie says. It's not necessarily rocket science. It's just realising your limitations and working with them to improve them. The Gillespies have sought to leave the land in better shape than when they found it. In 2020, they were the regional winners of the Balance Environmental Awards. They've planted thousands of native plants since 2017 and constructed wetlands on the property. They've opened their farm up to the public for open days and invited kids from local schools to learn about native plantings, which they grow in their own nurseries. They are themselves active in the community, including in local schools, which largely comprise the children of farmers. Under a high minimum flow, much of that would be gone, Gillespie says. Irrigation reliability would become too poor to be viable. Land values would drop and farms would go out of business. When you've got this much invested in the land and the community, would you walk away, she says. And how do we walk away, 
other than a whole lot of bankrupt businesses and a community completely stuffed. That's the other side of that argument. Yeah, they want a high flow, but what does that actually do to the community? Most frustrating, Gillespie says, is the lack of a broader discussion about solutions. Some have suggested compensation for farmers who lose access to water, essentially buying them out. But what happens to the farms? Farming them without water would crash their value, taking money out of the community. It's pretty pie in the sky, Gillespie says. There's got to be a better solution than that, and I think most farmers would agree. For the lower part of the Manuherekia Basin, water could be taken from the Clutha and distributed through better infrastructure, she says. Falls Dam, which is 90 years old, could be rebuilt or expanded. You've got to make the whole thing sustainable for the future, Gillespie says. Not just put all the water back in the river and go stuff anyone who lives in the valley. There's definitely solutions. It's getting people on board and actually going through those solutions, rather than constantly fighting about what a minimum flow should be. Gillespie has been involved in this debate for years and has seen people on the other side come and go. At no point has there been any sign of compromise, she says, one that would allow the community to stay together. We take the view that We're here for a long time, Gillespie says. We plant thousands of natives. We're making a good environmental footprint here. And we're making a difference. Whereas they're not. All they do is come and argue and leave. There's got to be some meat in the middle. We've already taken significant steps towards that. And no one else has. When Matthew Soule moved to central Otago 40 years ago, he found himself in a strange and unusual landscape. I thought I'd landed on the moon when I first arrived, he says. It took a bit to get used to, but it's really got under my skin. I can't see myself leaving. Everything was brown, rocky. There were barely any trees. On a macro scale, it looked hostile to life. But look closer and you'd see a world in miniature. The highest levels of biodiversity in the country, higher than beech forest, but invisible to many of us. Sol is an archaeologist who specialises in goldfields history. His work has led him to canvas much of the river and its tributaries. Nowadays, when he ascends into the high country, looking over the valley, He doesn't see the moonscape he once loved. When I walked up there 20 years ago, he says, you looked out over the Springvale Flats and they were just brown and sculptured. It was incredible. When I got up there recently, I got the shock of my life. There were vineyards, dairy support, lifestyle blocks. The whole landscape has changed immensely. Sol has long advocated for restoring the Manuherekia and has become frustrated by recent council decisions. He says councillors are kicking the can down the road, repeating the mistakes that got them into this situation to start with. 
he is no mere bystander. He himself has a modest water take on the river as part of an irrigation scheme and was once an officer with the former Ministry of Agriculture and Forestry. As part of his archaeological work, Sol once came across a historical description of the Manuhirakia River, dating from the 1860s. It was a place with the purest water to drink, with bush so thick that cows could be lost for days, the writer described. Just in his own lifetime, Sol has watched the river degrade. The gravels are often covered in slimy algae, and every so often an algal bloom strikes, which, he says, is like swimming in pea and ham soup. For Sol, only a high minimum flow will restore the mouldy of the river. The environment is like a person. The river, it's bloodstream. If you take out too much blood, the whole thing dies. Sol cannot see how the two sides of this debate will land on a solution. What I struggle with is, I don't feel we've got that much closer, he says. We've got better information, but basically the irrigation community sees that things are okay, and the stewardship paternity sees that things are not okay. There's this gulf, and I personally don't feel it can be bridged. For now, the issue is in a holding pattern. The council will soon receive the work it requested from the technical advisory group and will once again have to decide whether it has enough information to make a decision. When Marion Hobbs resigned, she was not replaced, meaning the councillors demanding more aggressive action are a clear minority. They will, however, have to make a decision. They've made a commitment to the government that a land and water plan with minimum flow limits will be notified in 2023. What it will look like is unclear. The water thing has polarised us so far, we're all looking askance at each other, Councillor Alexa Forbes says. In Forbes' view, there is a residual unwillingness to accept the rules of the game have changed. I do think that some are really struggling with that concept of te mana o te wai, where the economy is not primary, she says. And clearly, under this law, we're now willing to put the health of our environment above the health of our economy. And that's a big step for New Zealand. I think we're going to see a lot more of these difficulties nationally. And the Otago Regional Council is at the cutting edge of it. Despite what some critics might say, the council is on track to pass its land and water plan. Despite the delay over the Manuherakia, says Andrew Noon, the council's chairman. Like others on the council, he recognises the magnitude of the decision on both the community and the environment. These sorts of decisions have a significant impact on their community, he says, on water users and on the environment. So you want to get it right. You don't want to spend years and a significant amount of money trying to defend it in a court process. The only winners there are legal representatives, rather than the environment and the people who have got a direct connection to the catchment. In Noon's view, it's likely the minimum flow decision 
will be a staged one, a minimum flow that starts at the lower end of the options before ramping up in future years, much like council staff recommended. Noon himself has walked the Manuhetakia River, as have others in this debate. He has felt the water pull at his legs and followed the river's channel as it sways among the tussocks. He recognises that there needs to be a shift towards more environmental protection and says the process will be guided by te mana or te wai, as the law requires. Will the council be united enough to agree on that? Noon thinks so. We're dealing with challenging issues, he says, and that does create tension. Yeah, I accept that. It's not easy to be able to land in a place that can satisfy everyone's needs. But, you know, like all decision-making, there needs to be compromises. We recognise that the pendulum needs to swing back towards the environment. That was The Disappearing River on the Long Read from Stuff, written by Charlie Mitchell and read and produced by me, Michael Wright. This episode was edited by Jack Price. Stuff's podcast director is Adam Dudding. If you listened via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on the Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening.